Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Hello, how's it going? Thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter, and it's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agriculture. Well, I don't think you can talk about the future of our industry without using the word data. Right, Data has been just a massive driver of this recent ag tech boom. Everything from companies trying to figure out how do we collect data, how do we organize it, uh, who owns the data, how do we analyze it, and how do we put it into a form that a actual farmer or agribusiness person can use? Well, those are the exact questions that our guest here today uh, has been trying to answer. His name is Mike Neal. He's the co-founder and CEO of Decision Next. And what Decision Next does is utilizes data and analyzes data in a way to help companies make decisions when it comes to commodity markets. So maybe that's forecasting. Maybe that's transactional. They're trying to make a decision on a big trade. They're trying to make a decision on a hedge. Uh, they help these companies optimize their decision-making by using data both outside of the company and inside of the company. So what they end up getting is an actionable insight that they can use to decide whether or not to make a trade, to put on a hedge, or how they want to approach risk going forward so that they can minimize that risk and obviously maximize their return. So I found this interview to be extremely interesting. Mike is a guy who has uh, been very successful in his entrepreneurial journey through, I think, four companies all in this data analytics space. And he's applying it now to commodity markets companies including those in food and ag. So I enjoyed this. We start off kind of talking some basic economic concepts that will build on top of each other. And we end up talking about, of course, Decision Next, but also his entrepreneurial journey. Uh, and I, I find it really interesting. I think you will too. So without further ado, here is my interview with Mike Neal, the co-founder and CEO of Decision Next. Very pleased to have on the show today, Mike Neal, the co-founder and CEO of Decision Next. Excited to talk about this. Mike, thanks so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, maybe if you could just uh, start by giving us some background here. I know you started your career working for, for some large consulting firms. Uh, what ended up getting you on this path to starting analytics companies? There was one consulting project that um, I was assigned to back it almost 25 years ago now, it's been a while, um, when I was a, a junior guy at Deloitte Consulting in San Francisco. And, and we had been asked to do a price elasticity study by Target Stores in, uh, in Minneapolis. And Target Stores was pretty forward thinking to be doing price elasticity analysis way back then. Um, uh, what, they really, what they wanted was to know what the price elasticity was for every item in a Target store. Back then, that was something like 50,000 items. I have no idea what that number is today. Um, and so basically, what a price elasticity is, for those who haven't had Economics 101, is that it's quantification of what will happen differently when you raise the price or lower the price of an item. Well, if you raise it, will, will fewer people buy it? Um, and if so, how, how, how much fewer how, and, and, and vice versa, if you, if, uh, if you lower the price, will that, uh, will that create more demand for the item? 
or, or more sales for the item, I should say. Um, and so it's a pretty basic concept, and it's inherent in every retailer's uh, uh, strategy for merchandising what they sell. And Target wanted to know what that number was. Long story short, we, uh, we, we approached it by calculating a price elasticity number for an item across the chain. Sort of to solve a sparse data problem, we combined all the stores into one. From today's perspective, that was pretty naive. We, uh, we, 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 we should have handled each store separately because the consumer's mission in a store for a given item can be quite different store to store. And so the price elasticities are actually quite different. But what came out of it was uh, very interesting and, um, and actually quite useful for, for Target. Um, there's a couple of uh, epiphanies that we had, which I'll explain a little bit. One was that we found something that you do learn about in Economics 101, which is a Giffen good. It's an item that when you, actually, when you charge more for the item, you sell more. So it's, it's reverse price elastic. Or in other words, the demand curve goes from lower left to upper right. So it, it, doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take a Rhodes Scholar to know what to do with those items. If you raise the price, you raise sales, and, uh, and you do really well as a retailer. We found a couple of those, which was just very, very surprising and very cool. We also uh, found some anomalies, like in the, in the maternity section of a target, uh, if an item actually t- uh, was used by the baby, if it actually uh, touched the baby or was used by the baby, it was highly, um, it, w- it was inelastic. Nothing's too good for my child was, is, is presumably what explains those data. But if the item in the maternity section was used only by the mother and not by the baby, it was highly price elastic. Well, that was a, 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 uh, an epiphany for us, Target has always been forward thinking on merchandising and uh, they, they uh, uh, supposedly, we don't know, we don't know exactly what happened with it and, and I wouldn't be able to share it anyway, but um, we think that those were, uh, were used in, you know, in merchandising going forward from that point. And it really, it was really a light bulb for, for me that, Understanding demand elasticities and specifically price elasticities at retail was powerful. That there was a lot of room for a lot of room to play in that field, and that's really led to um, all four of the companies that I've been a part of that I've started with other with co-founders. And take us back to that time. So you you complete that project as as the uh, with the consulting firm you're working for. Uh, help us kind of follow that that thought process to the end. So uh, what ultimately prompted you to to leave a, a very good career track and start something on your own? So uh, the first the, the the first time that I did it uh, uh, in a big way was. Um, a company called Demand Tech, which I started with a Stanford professor um, in late 1999, uh, uh, really early 2000s when we got going. Um, and that one came out of out of uh, just a conversation I was happy with him, his, having with him. His name is Hal Lee, and he and I had been had done a number of um, consulting things together in the past. In fact, we were part of another startup, which is where I met him nonstop. Uh, logistics um, a few years earlier. Um, he and I just had this uh, conversation, which which led to 
this fundamental belief that demand elasticities, elasticities were not being uh, calculated or used in, in consumer goods retail. Um, that there was a lot of uh, consulting dollars being spent in this general area, a lot of money being spent on software, but nobody was really doing the basic task of calculating what is a consumer going to do differently as you change the price and ultimately as you change the promotion and the other factors that affect their, um, their, their consumer's behavior. Uh, and so it really wasn't about starting a company, to answer your question, Tim. It was about solving a problem, that there was this big opportunity to make a difference in this industry by applying mathematical models to this basic thing. What will a consumer do differently when you change the price, the space, the promotion, or the assortment? And if you could get it right, the concept was, that was, was pretty straightforward. If you could get it right, if you could get a model to actually do that, and then if you could scale that model uh, to the size of a large grocery chain or the size of a large mass merchant or a drugstore chain, if you could scale it to, to, to work at the size and scale of those businesses, then you had something really useful. And, and that premise turned out to be, to be true. You know, Demantech got uh, fairly large. Um, we took it public in 2007, and today it's part of, of IBM. Great. And, and yeah, after a few successful startups, uh, you decided to start your current company, which is Decision Next. Can you tell us what Decision Next is uh, and, and what it does a little bit? Uh, absolutely. So it's been a little bit of a continuum. So um, uh, after, after Demand Tech, we, we started a company called uh, Single Demand, which went upstream, applying similar concepts to to uh, food processors and, and wholesalers, um, and and uh, and single demand was focused on more on on forecasting. At Decision Next, we've taken it one big step further. First of all, we're not just in the uh, in in food; we're also in natural resources um, uh, and some other commodity markets. It's commodity markets, but the focus is is food and ag and. But, but, but the big difference is, is what we're doing there. There's been some changes uh, in the last few years around the availability of, of processing power um, with, with, with the hosting companies like AWS um, and Azure um, in, the, in the marketplace. Um, it, whereas in the past, you'd have to provision uh, banks of servers in a hosting center and manage them yourself. Uh, today you can strike a deal with, with Amazon AWS and be up and running quickly and, and have a much more flexible infrastructure. So with, with enormous processing power. So it allows us to do things today that we couldn't do then. For example, uh, we can run real time simulations of markets, uh, which, which creates, the ability for one of our users to not only do a commodity price forecast for fed cattle, let's say, uh, for um, six months or a year out, but it allows them to also do sensitivity analysis on the factors impacting that forecast. So what if, um, what if supply is different than, than assumed? What, what if, for example, a competitor uh, lowers their output, or what if the fed cattle supply is is not what 
is expected. Um, what if a uh, if a export country imposes uh, border controls and we can't export to that country anymore? There's a number of factors that could change the market, and um, and and knowing what will happen to the prevailing prices of both the inputs and the outputs if these factors happen is powerful stuff. And so that's that's a big change from our companies in the past is the ability to run simulations and get sensitivity analysis on what will happen. So a forecast doesn't it, it doesn't mean anymore what it, it used to mean. It used to mean an expected value or an expected value with confidence bands around it. Now what it means is a distribution of outputs um, uh, allowing you to understand the risk of a decision much more uh, at, a, at a much more granular level. And it also allows you to say, if some externality happens, if there's a hurricane that interrupts my supply chain, or if there's a policy change which affects my market, what's likely to happen as a result of that? So that's what's new with Decision Next. Yeah. So if I'm understanding right, if if I'm a, um, a a meat processing company, and at any given time I have uh, I have thousands of pounds of meat, um, maybe millions of pounds if I'm very large, millions of pounds of meat that I am going to sell, I plan to sell, and I know what today's market is. I could use your tool to kind of look at different scenarios of where the mic the market might be tomorrow when when I actually have that meat to sell. Is that uh, to put it in layman's terms, is that along the right path? That's exactly right. Yeah. So you can look at different scenarios for for um, for moving that meat through the system. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a there's an adage in that industry which I I'm, I'm, I bet you've heard, which is sell it or smell it. <laughs> yeah. And and you know, there's enormous volumes of product uh, coming through that supply chain, and so. And so the mentality historically has been one of um, keep keep it moving, keep it moving fast. And there's tradition, or historically, there's been fire sales that get conducted, say on Fridays of a given week, because um, uh, you know because if you don't sell it, you have a much bigger problem the next Monday. That's been the mechanism to keep the product flowing. Much better if you can get ahead of that and strategically build forward sold positions across across the carcass um, of whatever protein we're talking about, so that you don't get stuck in those you know in, in in the position of having to have a fire sale. And that's that's one of the that's one of the ways that uh, very focused analytics is getting used these days to uh, make these companies more profitable. Great. It, it seems like I mean, obviously, you uh, you are an expert when it comes to to data and data management. Is there an element here of like m machine learning or artificial intelligence that aids in the tool? Yes. Yeah, so there's elements of both. The one thing I'd say is we believe we at uh, Decision Next believe uh, that having a transparent process matters. Um, that, in other words, we don't believe that any tool helping an analyst should be a black box with sort of a sacred answer that comes out um, uh, that should be consumed by the business. Um, we've tried that in the past, and frankly, um, it's, it's difficult for a user to trust a black box answer. Ultimately, you know, trust often does happen, and, and you can actually move 
the needle for a company, but it's not worth it. It's much better to show to show a user exactly what's happening behind the scenes, why a given uh, recommendation was made. So uh, and so, um, machine learning uh, often uh, is often uh, sort of synonymous with a black box process where where it's not easily sort of uh, 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 pulled apart. It's not easily teased out what actually happened. And so there's a huge uh, sort of step of, or, or element of trust required. And we don't do that. With that one caveat, yeah, that's what this is. So we're, we have a, a hypothesis, a market hypothesis, which says we think these 19 variables impact um, some combination of variables uh, that are dependent variables, namely, it's usually uh, supply and price. And those two, of course, are tightly connected to each other in commodity markets. Um, and, you know, and so we build um, a modeling infrastructure that takes those relationships uh, into account. And we, and we expose that very clearly to the people using it. So there's another side to this, which is important to mention. Uh, that transparency matters for a separate reason. Um, it, 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 the, the, the first reason, which I, I, I just explained, of course, is, is, is trust, so that the user ends up trusting the model. But there's a second reason, which is we've learned over time that, um, that there's, some, there's an element that an expert user in a market, somebody who's really plugged into what's happening, uh, there's an element they bring to the, to the table that it's very difficult to get a machine to, to duplicate. So as good as your algorithm is, as good as your machine learning or AI approach is, it's not going to be perfect. Maybe hundreds of, of years from now, um, this, this won't be true. But for all practical purposes today, there is, there is an element. And, and you can call that element uh, uh, intuition. But what it really boils down to is pattern recognition. Uh, the ability of a human to say, you know, this market we're in right now feels a lot like 2008. And the reason it feels like 2008 is, you know, the Japan market is, is, is open, uh, Russia's closed, uh, there's tight supply, retail demand is high, you know, a bunch of, you know, and, and those are random factors that I just I pulled out of the air, but, but, um, a combination of factors comes together to create an impression on the on the um, smart analyst who's following the market. And there's this ability, we've seen it over and over again, where somebody says, you know, this feels a lot like a certain time in the past. Well, if that's true, there's a couple of things they can do now to to uh, with 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 modern analytical tools to take advantage of that. Um, and, and, and so what we, what, what we do at decision next and, uh, and, and presumably others, uh, someday will do this as well is to allow them to interact with the model and impart that, uh, pattern recognition learning on, on the model. And, you know, and what happens is the forecasts get better. It's a, you know, sort of a, a, uh, it's sort of a happy um, surprise that that it actually works that way, but it does. Um, and, you know, and it shouldn't be a surprise, frankly, because if you, you know, this the same discovery has been been made in other fields. I mean, I'm sure you've read about in the game of chess. You know, there was a time when uh, when the machine finally beat the man. It was um, 
uh, Deep Blue be Gary Kasparov, I believe it was, and 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 the era of the machine winning at chess began. And today, machines pretty consistently beat humans. But there's the concept of the centaur, which is the human machine uh, pairing, which um, I understand consistently beats machines. So it's so the combination is powerful, and it's uh, it's not just you know in commodity market or food market analytics. Yeah, I, I've seen that very directly. You know, my background is in in grain trading, and uh, the best traders. Uh, were the ones that had been around long enough to see various patterns and had that sort of intuition where they could get a good feel for a market. You know, when a market is firming up, it, it's a feeling. You could uh, right. you could hear it in the phones ringing. You could see it on on the board. I mean, it's just a feeling. And so it's really interesting um, to hear about you know the dynamic that you kind of play to that with Decision Next, where you you bring transparency to the process and you allow them to follow that feeling and, and sort of it sounds like validate it through your technology. Exactly, exactly. And there's something else that happens, too. And I, I, I bet you'll tell me this happened in grain trading, which is that there's a feedback loop, which is powerful. Hmm. So I've seen this before. I know what's I know what's happening here. I've seen it uh, three years ago in the market. OK, so now I, I, I work with the model and, and, and model out what will happen uh, using that using the machine's best information and using my pattern recognition. And then something happens, right? Then, then the market unfolds and you, and, and, and you have a new data set. Well, it's not just a new data set to train the machine. It's a new data set to train that expert user as well. Right. And so you have this virtuous cycle where both get better over time. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, and I, I love the chess example. I, I knew that there had come a time, I don't know what it was in the 90s or whenever it was where the computer beat the man, but I didn't realize that consistently the man plus commute, computer can still beat the, the machine. Um, that's that, that's, that's what's happened. Apparently, I don't know when that transition happened, but it's measured in years. It's not in the last year. Um, it's it, but, but yes, the Centaur is now apparently the best, uh, the, 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 the way to beat everybody else in, in chess. So it, it seems to me with your, with your technology, um, you are you're kind of filling a spot that maybe a, a target c customer of yours they they just wouldn't be currently using something, so it doesn't display something else. It's almost like something you would want to add on. Is that accurate? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, so uh, I mean, the the impact isn't that you reduce manpower. Um, uh, I mean, if 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 that's what you're using this type of analytics for, then you're missing a huge opportunity. Um, the, 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 the impact is to, tr is to repurpose uh, people. You can imagine that over time, there, there, there's probably a, a different definition of the skills that will be successful in an organization over a, you know, the medium to long term. But in the short term, um, you know, the basic blocking and tackling of figuring out what a market's going to do um, and then translating that outlook into concrete action steps as a trading team or a sales team or a marketing team. Um, a lot of that job gets easier. Um, it doesn't go away. I mean, you would, you, you, you really want that human interaction with the model, but it just elevates the job. Um, you're no longer going item by item through a pricing sheet before you start your trading day. You know, you're starting with one that the machine has recommended or the machine plus human forecast has led you to. 
And then you're reviewing it and saying, is this, does this make sense? And then you can spend the rest of your time thinking about how to help your customers be more successful, uh, which is, uh, it's a whole different subject, but it's a way to decommoditize yourself as a commodity seller, you know, to actually add value to your customer and not, um, and not sell them a, a commodity uh, good at the lowest price. Yeah. Tell, tell me more about that. How is working with these large uh, food and agriculture firms, and I know you work in other commodities as well, but how is working with commodity firms different than the work you used to do with uh, more of like your, your retail merchandising uh, type firms like a, like a Target? How, uh, I'd love to hear more about the differences in, in the two environments. So, yeah, there's, there's a few differences. And, it's, and that that's a, a question I'm glad you asked because, um, because there's, there's a lot there's a lot here. The uh, so if you're a commodity player, um, you know if you read the, the textbook definition of a commodity, that means you're a price taker. So you have no control over price, right? Um, whatever the prevailing price is in the market, that's the price you're going to take, and 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 so you're kind of a, a a a victim of your environment. Well, that just doesn't exist in the real world. I mean, it, it, it said better, if it does, I haven't found it yet. There are, all, there are always reasons why you need to be slightly above the prevailing price or slightly below the prevailing price um, to, to make yourself more successful or to make your customer more successful, which, if you're playing a longer game, is very important to you. Um, and and, and so, so understanding the range within which you should be playing as a seller, that, that example is a seller, but the same thing happens on the on the on the uh, buying side of a company as well. So by, by that, do you mean like uh, your position, your your thoughts on the outlook of the market, uh, kind of like those nineteen factors you mentioned earlier, the nineteen variables? Exactly, exactly. Well, there's there's a few, a few pieces of that. So yes, um, my position. So if I'm if I'm uh, convinced that the next three weeks will have lower prices. If I, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm selling uh, uh, dairy products in the marketplace, and I think the next three weeks uh, there'll be some softness in price. Um, and and let's say for the sake of argument that my belief is is not widely shared. Um, that's hugely valuable information, right? Um, I'm going to want to sell that future capacity today as much as possible. I'm going to want to, want to get forward sold, so that um, so that I'm enjoying higher prices and I don't suffer those lower spot prices when the when that those days come. Right. Right. And vice versa. If I think prices are going to get better, I'm going to want to stay out of the forward markets and enjoy them in the future. Mm-hmm. But of course, nobody has perfect forecasts. Um, Decision X doesn't have perfect forecasts. Nobody does. So the, we're we're talking about degrees of accuracy. Um, uh, as it turns out, and, and people who do this every day will will acknowledge this quickly, um, it doesn't take huge jumps in forecasting accuracy to 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 monetize this to the tune of huge amounts of money. Um, forecasting accuracy matters as long as you translate that to action. And the forward sold or forward bought curve is one place to monetize it in a in a big way. And so and so back to what's a commodity and, 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 and how does this differ? So having a rigorous view as to where the market's going, um, and especially if it's informed by all the available information 
that uh, that's possible or, or that, that that is truly available, such as an expert on your team or, you know, combined with all of the data that surround this problem. Um, having a rigorous view matters uh, as long as it's monetized through optimizing the forward position on the buy side or the sell side. Um, but back to the back to the original uh, question. So uh, I say there is no such thing as a true commodity. You know, the, the axes on which you get to play historically have been uh, price, which nobody wants to compete on price. It's a it's a it's 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 not a long term successful game. It's a race uh, to the bottom. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you, you can compete on quality, but um but a lot of the opportunity, uh, certainly in the developed world around quality and commodity products, is is is, is sort of well trodden. It's uh, and 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 priced into the to the markets. You can compete on customer service, but you can only go so far there. Um, and and uh, but the last one's pretty interesting. It's competing on making your own customer successful. Uh, so to the extent, and we've seen this a few times now, uh, where. Where, where our company, uh, Decision Next, is providing technology to a supplier, and they in turn provide that technology uh, just uh, almost as a pass through to their to their customer, you know. And, and let's say we're talking about a forecast, so they'll just share the forecast with their customer. All of a sudden, they have decommoditized themselves. Hmm. They're not selling a commodity; they're a partner who's helping their customer become more successful. That's um, that's a powerful model because um, because both sides are taking care of the other and it's less about um, uh, uh, playing at the margin uh, where the where the uh, retailer or food service distributor is finding the very cheapest input on a given day, um, but not, you know, but not working closely with their trading partner to make both companies more profitable. And are you doing this, uh, at least within the ag part of your business, are you doing this on, on all index-traded commodities? Yeah, in, in, in theory, we, we haven't gotten to all of them yet. Um, and, and by the way, we are working on non-index-traded commodities as well. Um, so to that point, if there is an index, um, it, it's the, this is data that's available to all the players in a market. And so the market tends to take advantage, at least the the more analytical players in the market tend to take full advantage of that information. Um, so it's sort of uh, table stakes in that market. But in a market that doesn't have um, information uh, that's that's made public by the uh, by an exchange or by, say, the U.S. Department of Agriculture in the United States, um, there's still opportunity because what each company has is their own transaction history. And there are correlated items generally in the marketplace, and so um, uh, and so so there there may be a place where quantitative models don't work, but we haven't found it yet. They just you know in, in a situation like we've just described, um, the uh, it's just the baseline will be lower. The level of performance to to actually have a differential advantage over the competition is going to be lower because nobody has the advantage of a exchange traded commodity data stream. Right. Yeah. Talking to a guy who used to trade wheat mids, there's no there's no exchange for, for wheat mids. So I understand how that uh, lack of information can, can play itself out. But no, Absolutely. this is 
Yeah, really, really interesting. I mean, if uh, you know, if I wanted to come to you, I, I guess I, I was just thinking my question was going to be if I wanted to come to you and say, hey, I'm the only person in the uh, the Sesame market that that gets to use your platform. Uh, I'm sure there's people who would love to get to carve out an advantage that way. But I guess if you're using their data, they already have a monopoly over that data, right? Exactly. Exactly. They get to control what I do with that data. Um, and of course they don't want me using that for anybody else. So, so yes, uh, which is another, which, which, which is part of the explanation to what happens when two competitors get this technology, mm-hmm. um, which is a question that often comes up. And, you know, and the answer is, um, I mean, you're halfway to the answer, which is the data entering the system for the two competitors is different. Uh, there could be some common elements if both are using a USDA reported average, for example, or, a, or a, the uh, Merck uh, number for a traded commodity. There will be some common elements, but arguably the most important element is the transaction history itself for that customer, and it's going to be different. And, 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 and to boot, what else is different is their strategy and their experts' inputs to the model. So the models are going to yield very different um, forecasts and the and the actual actions they should be taking will be quite different as well. That is really interesting. I, I, coming from a commodities background, I, I find this stuff uh, just inherently fascinating. I, I would like to get uh, a little bit into here before I let you go. You, your um, your background. Now, you, you've, you've successfully exited multiple startups. Uh, as you're thinking through like what your next project was going to be in the past, what, what are the first steps you – you take to kind of come up with your, your next big idea? Well, um, so, so the way, the way I've approached it, so I've, I've done this uh, four times now. And, and so you could, you could look at that and say, well, there's, there's a plan here and, and that he, this guy clearly likes to start companies. And while I suppose that's true, the, the point wasn't to start companies. This was about an idea in each case. It was about an idea that, uh, that 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 had huge potential, or in in my mind had huge potential, and 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 I wanted to 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 actually play it out and demonstrate the potential to change an industry and to add a lot of value. It really, wasn't about starting a company. It just turned out that, that was the way to do it, um, uh, because there was nobody doing these things at the time, and 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 having sort of highly focused people and dedicated resources, as opposed to doing this as a part of some bigger company where the focus would be diluted. Uh, having having focus matters, and so it really was about the idea, and that's a pretty important um, point when you talk. You know, I've I've been in situations many times in the past where you're talking to someone who's thinking about starting something, and and they you know and and what you'll hear is, oh, I'm searching for the right idea, and what I would say in those situations, what I always do say is, you know. Uh, it better be uh, something you, you care a lot about, something that you really believe in in your bones. Because if you don't, I mean, what happens is it's hard to start a company. I mean, I, 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 it's to me the best analogy is running a marathon. If you if if you've ever run a marathon, are you a runner, Tim? Uh, casual, not a marathon runner. Okay, so what every marathoner has said at about mile twenty is, "Oh, this is awful." I'm I have no idea what I was thinking about. 
I will never do this again. And, and, I, and, and everyone, maybe at the, at the elite end of the sport, that doesn't get said, but everybody else says those words. And, um, and, and, and to a person the next day or two days later, they say, you know, that was great. I think I want to find another one. <laughs> and, um, you know, so there's this sort of selective memory thing that happens. And, and you know, and so uh, the, the, it's relevant because there are really bad days when you're starting a company. And I don't care how successful you ultimately are with the company. There's bad days. And, and if, unless you're pretty sure that this is a huge idea and that you're going to make a difference and it's going to be useful to people, you know, unless you're, unless you believe in your heart that this is going to happen, it won't happen. You know, it's good. You're going to, you're going to, uh, you're, you're, you're going to walk away at some point. So, I mean, it's true about not just convincing customers, but about, but about convincing investors and convincing sharp people to join your team, you know, you need the, you need a certain amount of conviction or you shouldn't do it. So, so that's been a sort of a common theme. These are ideas that I and my co-founders felt were important. And, and that's why we, we, we built companies around them. Interesting. Yeah. It's additionally difficult in, 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 to use the startup analogy with marathon running is you you never know if you're on mile 20 or on mile two. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. It's a level of uncertainty that you don't have with the marathon. Right. Uh, I'm curious on the, co- the co-founder thing. Have you always made it a strategic priority to um, to go into business with others? Or has that just naturally happened by kind of dissecting the problems with others? Oh, it's it's, it's I guess I've never articulated it as a priority, but but it certainly has been because um, I'm just not smart enough on on, on on some of the other components that are important besides you know, what I bring to the table, like the science side of it, for example, um, Bob Pierce is my co-founder and he's brilliant. He's very good at turning, uh, turning, uh, conceptual value ads into something that actually works. It's a, it's a skill set. You know, he's a PhD in physics from Berkeley and he's, he's blazingly smart, but he has this skill set that goes along with that of actually translating, um, an idea into something that that is useful, usable by a human and actually works. And so, yeah, so um, I, I theoretically, I could have started this myself, I suppose, and gone out looking for that. But that, you know, but that uh, would have left too much risk. Bob and I threw in together for a reason. So. So, yeah. So in each that's just an example. So in each case, it's uh, bringing somebody to the table who uh, who brings something important. Mike, as you look to the future, uh, what are some uh, exciting developments in, in related to data in, in food and agriculture that that you find interesting, kind of on the horizon? Uh, let's see. Um, so, so, I mean, the, one of the this is less a development. I'll answer your question in a minute, but uh, but let me let me uh, talk about what, what one sort of long term trend that makes this all pretty. Uh, exciting and highly relevant is, is the fact that, um, you know, the world population is expected to sort of top out at 9 billion people. That's what scientists generally agree to now, but by the year 2050, the Malthusian tipping point will, will happen. That's, that's generally agreed to. And, and, you know, and we can't feed the world's population today at, 
at seven point whatever the number is uh, billion. Uh, so finding ways to make this supply chain actually uh, more efficient and effective is, 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 is it's about a lot more than making companies more profitable. Um, so to us, you know, so, some of the more exciting developments down the road are around how do you translate this math that allows you to simulate markets into uh, delivering calories to a nine billion strong world population. There's lots. There's lots of people doing exciting stuff these days. Um, of course, which uh, which you're probably more familiar with than I am, Tim. Uh, I mean, some of the stuff around food waste, for example, a huge portion of the food supply chain is is actually just thrown away. Um, so there's there, there's a lot more than uh, s- simulation models modeling commodity markets. But I, but, but I would say that this is going to uh, actually move the needle. This type of applying this type of mathematical approach to markets is going to make them more efficient and more effective, and will help solve this problem. Okay, I, pr- I promise I'm going to let you go. But one more question just popped in my head: Do you, yeah. do you ever foresee a, a government using Decision Next to kind of try to do sensitivity analysis on on their own food supply? Absolutely, um, absolutely. Uh, I. I you know, the sales cycle of an enterprise software company to a large, uh, a, a Fortune 500 company or a Fortune 1000 company is arduous. It's hard. You know, it's it, you know, as as powerful as the value add might be, it still takes multiple people to make a decision. Um, so that being true, I can't imagine what a sales cycle is like to a government. Um, so I. So the answer to your question is yes, I, I believe it will happen. Um, but we're we're uh, we're not sending our sales team into 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 government offices just yet. Um, and maybe that's uh, maybe that's uh, uh, it, 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 sort of a ill-conceived uh, way to look at it. But uh, for us, there's just so much opportunity right in front of us that we haven't gone there yet. Quick answer: Yes, I think someday that'll happen. We're, we we certainly haven't done it yet, though. Wow. No, this is so interesting. You, I don't. You can't help but think like, okay, the you know the big ideas out there are taken, but then you hear something like this, and like it's a big. There are still big ideas being created out in the world relative to our you know age old industry, and so I, I really appreciate Mike you taking the time and sharing about your background and about Decision Next. Thanks uh, very much for being on the show. If, if somebody wants to kind of reach out to you and follow up, uh, where's the best place to send them? Uh. Our the Decision Next website um, has a way to to leave your information, um, so that's probably the best place. Also, info at decisionnext.com is a great is a great place. Um, so yeah, that's a uh, it'd be it'd be great to hear from people with input and ideas about about what we're doing in the marketplace. So thank you, Tim. I appreciate the time. Hope you all enjoyed that interview. Big thank you to Mike Neal for being on the show. Uh, I love examples like this where we can take a concept like data that's talked about uh, 
endlessly online and actually put a story behind it and get to see how it's actually being used in practice. So very cool there. If you, if you have an idea for other topics like this, uh, data as an example, but any others that are affecting the future of agriculture uh, that we should try to look for an interesting company, person or idea to profile, would love to do that. Please uh, hit me up on Twitter at Tim Hamrich. Thanks so much. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit futureofag.com, that's futureofagag.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.